0: And I invite you again to turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3, we'll read from verse 1 in chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 4. And as you turn to Acts chapter 3, we've spent the last three or four weeks thinking about how the kingdom grows in us as a church by uh, adopting a rule of life that regularly and consistently focuses our attention on Jesus every day and every week. Uh, We've seen how we're called to frame our weeks by worshiping together on Sunday and how we're to frame our days with individual prayer and with the practice of sacrificial discipleship. We've seen how we're to frame our lives around corporate prayer with each other and around hospitality that invites others into our homes and receives them into our lives as though we are God's gift to each other. Because the Bible tells us we are. And we focus on this because this way of living is transformative. These regular practices of Sunday worship, daily prayer, communal prayer, and sacrificial hospitality changed the church in Acts. It matured them in the faith, it increased their love, it grew their patience, their grace, their kindness, their joy, and most especially It anchored their trust in Jesus more and more deeply each day. And I bring this up because now in chapter 3, the kingdom of God is going to expand in the world again in a massive way. Uh, Do you remember how at the end of Pentecost, Peter's Pentecost sermon, 3,000 souls believed in Jesus? Well, in chapter 4, verse 4, 5,000 men will believe in Jesus. It's almost double the first conversion. And actually, it was probably more than double. So the normal way of counting people in the ancient world was to count men, not their wives, or their kids, or their slaves. So when Luke counts souls in chapter 2, he is unusually including everyone, men, women, children, and slaves. And I don't know why he switched from that approach to this more common way of counting people, Uh, I'm assuming there's some sort of theological reason. I don't know what it is, but I can tell you in agreement with even the most uh, ancient commentators on this passage that women, children, and slaves also believed, though they weren't numbered in that count. And so at the end of the story, you have 5,000 men believing in Jesus, but if most of them was married, as was common in that time, uh, and most of those women converted along with their husbands, which also would have been very common, that would bring the number closer to 10,000. And if most had children, as would most likely have been the case, and if those kids would have started coming to church with them, as your kids do, and you meet Jesus and you come to church, and if you assume roughly two kids per family, which is actually probably a really, really conservative estimate, that is now closer to 20,000 people. And if you include slaves, the number could easily double or triple to 40,000 people. This is a Massive conversion. And though, unlike Pentecost, it might not have all happened at one time, this conversion might have taken place over a couple of weeks rather than kind of at one moment at the very end of the sermon, still, it is significantly bigger than Pentecost. And I believe Jesus had this happen after the church learned how to live out weekly worship, daily prayer regular communal prayer, regular sacrificial hospitality, so that when this huge number of people came in, they would be able to enter into a daily, weekly, and monthly rhythm that would ground their communion in Jesus, bind them together as a church family, and mature them in the faith as disciples of Christ, led by those who had themselves experienced the way of life that Jesus had given them and the spiritual growth. In other words, they were being led by people who had something to give because they have themselves received it. You can't give what you have not been given. By being given this way of life, they could give it to this massive number of folk who entered into relationship with Jesus at the end of this passage. The two are connected, uh, especially as we're going to see this morning when we consider the miracle and the invitation that drew these 5,000 men and maybe fifteen to 25,000 other people who were with them to Christ. So at the heart of our passage this morning is this great gift of being given the purpose of blessing people with a place where they truly belong. Uh, This morning, we're going to see that the kingdom grows as we invite folk to join Jesus in his work of fitting people into their place in the kingdom of God through repentance and faith in Jesus. And we'll be unpacking for that uh, more in depth in a moment. But let me just say this before we actually begin it. Uh, It seems to me that a lot of people today are looking for a purpose to their life and for a place where they belong. Uh, They don't know what to do, they don't know why they're here, and they don't know where they fit. Uh, Our passage today is about how Jesus gives us a place to fit in the church and gives us all a profound purpose to our lives by personally drawing us in as partners in Jesus' redemptive mission. Okay, so let's explore all this. The map of our discussions on the wall. We're going to talk about the place, the person, obviously Jesus, and the purpose. Uh, but first, let's read our passage and pray. So Acts chapter 3, 1, starting in verse 4, 4. Let's hear God's word. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. In his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you. By turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about five thousand. Let's follow the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this powerful word, and we ask, Lord, that you would use it to give us life, to give us faith, to give us hope, to help us see you and follow you, to enter deeply into the purposes that you have given us as your people, uh, to help people know that they belong and that they fit uh, as we follow the person of Jesus. Lord, even as we pray for all of us, we know that it won't amount to anything, your word, unless your spirit also goes with it. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit now would bless your words to us so that we might have ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe it. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want to focus on is this miraculous healing and how it gave this man a place. We're told at the beginning that at the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., the apostles Peter and John were heading into the temple to pray. Like we talked about last Sunday, I'm assuming that this 3 p.m. prayer time fit their schedule that day and that they were going to pray with the other disciples, whose schedules also allowed them to gather together for corporate prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, But I don't think Luke tells us that it was the ninth hour simply to give us an idea about the apostles' busy schedule. Uh, The ninth hour is the hour that Jesus finished bearing our judgment on the cross and opened the door to his kingdom. So Peter and John entered the temple at the ninth hour at the beautiful gate. And it seems it was called the beautiful gate because this entrance was more beautiful. And therefore, more enjoyable to walk through than the other temple entrances. And as with most things that are uh, beautiful and enjoyable, this would have been a high-traffic area. Lots of people would go by each day. They'd be talking, praying to God, telling jokes. It would have been a lot like us coming in and out of church on Sunday. And we're told that outside this beautiful entrance with all of these people is a man who is lame from birth. And we can tell from the miracle that will happen in a few verses that his ankles and feet were deformed in some way. Either they were deformed from within the womb, or something happened to him as he was being born. Now, in the ancient world, especially in the Roman and Greek cultures of the world, babies born deformed were usually left on the side of the road to die of exposure. Uh, this is not what Jewish people did, though, right? Because they worship God. But I say that because as Roman soldiers walked by, Greek businessmen, Egyptian traders who all would have been coming through this area, they would have looked at this man as an unfortunate mistake at best or as a waste of life at worst. This man had no place and he had no value outside of Israelite life. And even within Israelite life, he probably wasn't really able to find much of a place either. People who suffered from deformities while still able to worship God, couldn't worship God in the temple. And if you don't know all the reasons why, we can talk about that more some other time. But just know that he could not join his fellow Israelites as they worshipped the God together in his temple. He could not enter through the beautiful gate. That's why he was outside and not inside. Uh, but that's not all. Uh, while it was a great act of kindness and love and hospitality that his parents showed him, in welcoming him into their life as their child. They clearly were not wealthy people. Uh, maybe they were slaves. We can't really know anything other than uh, they didn't leave him an inheritance. And I say they didn't leave him an inheritance because I'm assuming his parents are dead. Otherwise, he wouldn't have needed to beg. He would have been cared for by his family, but he's not. Uh, I think his mom and dad are very clearly gone. And I'm also assuming he didn't have brothers and sisters, though it is possible he did, but they simply refused to care for this man who was completely unable to work because of his deformity, because he can't stand on his own two feet in a society where there is only physical labor to do. Uh, But thankfully, he was in Israel, so he could at least receive gifts of charity, which are alms from God's people. Which is why most days a group of people would take this man who was dehumanized by the larger culture and power, the Roman society and the Greek culture that they embraced, and who was treated with very minimal care by his kinsmen, who was alone. He was put outside this gate to beg. And that day, he holds his hand out to Peter and John, asking for alms, asking for charity. And then Peter tells the man, look at us. Which tells us this man was so used to being devalued that he wouldn't even look at people like our homeless who aren't used to being treated with any kind of warmth or basic humanity. And so they look away to avoid one more experience of shame and contempt. Peter says, look at us. And he looks. And then Peter says something that kind of sounds a little untrue in verse six. I have no silver or gold. Uh, But Peter, just a few verses earlier, we're told that Christians were selling their things to make sure needs were met. I mean, surely you had some silver and gold somewhere. Obviously, you had access to cash. Uh, so some commentators say that Peter says this simply because he didn't have it on him at the time. Uh, but I think Peter says, that might be true. I don't know. Uh, I'll ask him when I get to heaven. But, but I do think Peter says this for a, a more profound reason, which is that he wants this man to realize that he is more to God than simply an empty bank account. Jesus is going to use Peter to give him something far more valuable than money. And so he says in verse 6, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now with all that I've said, I hope you don't think the gift is merely the ability to walk. Walk. Uh, because where does he go when he can walk? Verse 8, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. He was brought into the temple, into the fullness of God's people, into prayer with the church, into the life of Christ's church, with John and Peter. He was healed in order to be given a place with Jesus. And it wasn't a place he purchased or was born into. He was given a place in God's family because that is Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission is to give us a place in the family of God. Jesus takes us sinners who suffer from sin and who suffer from brokenness because of sin in the world, who are cast out because of the fall, who are lost and lonely And through his work completed on the ninth hour of the cross, takes us into fellowship with the saints and gives us a place among his people and fits us into the place in his kingdom that he has prepared for us beforehand, before the foundation of the world itself. And it's that gift that caused this man, verse 11, to cling to Peter and John. And what does that mean? Uh, It means that he collapsed onto their shoulders in joyful, overwhelmed emotion. Uh, Did he ugly cry with happiness? I think so. Uh, Did he alternate between laughing and crying? Have you ever seen someone who's so happy they're crying and they're laughing and then they're crying and they're laughing because they're crying just goes back and forth? I think that's what he did. For the first time since his parents welcomed him into their lives by the grace of God, This man was welcomed into the life with God among the people of God in fullness and in wholeness and out of a desire to have him be there. Which brings me to my second point, uh, which is not long, but it's important. Uh, In verse 11, his clinging to Peter and John, it draws a crowd because he's not being quiet about this. You don't ugly cry quietly. Uh, Everyone looks over to see what this commotion is and they recognize the man. Uh, they see him standing and they're amazed and they run over to find out what happened. And then Peter begins a sermon that you might not think would be very successful. Uh, he begins in verse 12 by telling everyone not to be impressed with them. Uh, we don't have this power. We aren't the ones who did this. Right? He says, uh, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we made him walk. And then Peter reminds them about Jesus. He says at the beginning of verse 13 that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob glorified Jesus, meaning, and the crowd understood what this meant, Jesus had been doing the same kinds of glorious things and even more of them and even greater things of these just like two, three, four, five months earlier. God has shown his power and he'd shown it even more powerfully in Jesus and y'all killed him you're amazed by us for doing something that Jesus did and then you denied him to Pilate and you killed Jesus so why are you celebrating us when you killed Jesus this is not the way they tell you to share the gospel in seminary um, but hey Peter says While you kill Jesus in ignorance, I have some good news for you. Jesus didn't stay dead. God raised him up and we saw him. That's verse 15. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And Jesus was not only raised up from the dead, he is also living and active in the world now. He was not raised up and going to heaven where he just does nothing, he's at work now so that through the faith of people who trust in his name Jesus is doing things that's verse 16 and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of all of you and i know it seems a little clunky in english it's super clunky in greek it's this the greek the greek sentence reads something like um Jesus has given perfect health in in the name of Jesus. And the presence of you all by faith in Jesus has made him strong through faith. It's, uh, you get Peter's point. Faith in Jesus. Jesus is doing things through the faith of his people. People want the crowd to know that the glory of Jesus is not gone. It's here still. Uh, Jesus is working right now, as you can see, to fit people into his kingdom. He's acting today to give the lost a hope and the lonely a home. He's acting today to forgive and to restore sinners and to build a community of faith that through communion with God by faith in Jesus and through his hospitality expressed through his people, can and will incorporate everyone who joins it will fit them in to the church of jesus and from there as a side note i do want us to think for just a quick second about whose faith in jesus made this man whole because this is important for us as a church Uh, i know we probably want it to be the man's faith in jesus the healed man's faith because uh, we might think that that is theologically easier Uh, But that just doesn't make sense in terms of the text. The man doesn't talk about Jesus. Uh, He doesn't mention Jesus. He doesn't seem to know who Peter and John were. So it has to be Peter and John's faith that Jesus uses to make this man well. And here's how I make sense of that. Uh, Peter and John, as they walked by this man, lonely, displaced, and despised, believed that Jesus could have a place for him in his kingdom. And so they acted on faith, on Jesus' stated mission, to proclaim good news to the captives, good news to the poor, good news to the broken and the lost and the lonely and to sinners, and to treat them as somebody that Jesus is inviting, because he is, into his kingdom. And so their faith that Jesus meant what he said and the actions they took on the basis of that faith is what Jesus used to bring him into the kingdom. And from there, I just want to ask us, like, how many of us struggle with having faith that uh, that person, for whatever reason, could fit into the kingdom of Jesus? How many of us know people where we think, I don't know if they would ever be able to fit in a church or our church or somewhere else? Uh, You see, I think one of the discipleship challenges for us in this story is not only the challenge for us to call others to faith, but to show faith-filled love and to give faith-filled invitations into the life of the church to other people. Uh, Not by declaring healings and miracles and all that, but by offering welcome and offering forgiveness and by offering people a place in Christ's kingdom in the name of Jesus to everyone, to actually be willing to say, you know what? Jesus does have a place for him, her, them, and to act on that faith, to invite, to open up, and to share. And that brings me to my final point, the purpose. So having given this man a place By giving him the person of Jesus, and by inviting him into Jesus' church, Peter now offers the crowd a purpose, as well as a person. Uh, Join Jesus in this great mission of walking with him in faith. So in verses 22 to 26, Peter starts talking about the Old Testament prophets. And in verses 22 to 24, he reminds them that Moses himself promised a prophet, who would lead God's people into fullness of life with God. And he's telling them that prophet has come and that prophet is Jesus. But now notice what he says in verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, remember, he's speaking to a majority Jewish audience, and that's why Peter reminds them of the calling they had as Israel, of their purpose of their life and their identity as Israel, which was to live out the Abrahamic promise of being the source of God's blessing of life to the entire world. So he brings the sermon to a close, by connecting following Jesus to the purpose of Israel's existence, which is be the place where the world meets the blessings of God in Christ, in whom are all the blessings of God. The prophet who speaks life and gives life is offering you a place with him to proclaim the blessings of Christ. Uh, I'm sure this deeply connected to their hearts, and I'm hoping it deeply connects to ours too, Uh, don't we want to be a people where our neighbors are at ease with us where they trust us and enjoy us because they are receiving the welcome and blessing of God through us that's part of the Abrahamic promise that's part of the purpose of being God's people and of living with Jesus together as the church and so he offers them a purpose but he offers them also something more because as sons of the prophets they knew that the prophets were constantly saying, essentially, hey guys, uh, you're not doing a great job of blessing people in God's name here. Uh, There's a lot of stealing, a lot of hatred, a lot of greed, a lot of idolatry. Uh, People are being enslaved. People are being oppressed. People are being denied justice. The blessings of God are freedom, peace, and forgiveness. Those don't seem to be very available here right now. Uh, God's people... That Peter's preaching to understood the inadequacy of their power to achieve their desire. And I think we understand our inadequacy as well. And that's why along with this purpose, he also offers them the person of Jesus, whose presence will empower them to fulfill their God-given mission. That's verses 19 through 20, which is so beautiful. Uh, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Peter offers them a purpose in God's kingdom that isn't achieved through their own power, but through Jesus' personal presence, which brings them the power of his forgiveness and his rest. Actually, the word for refreshing there means like, by you, think refreshing can also mean rest. It can also mean relaxation. The idea is this, this time of incredible, contented rest. Peter offers that to them in Jesus so that they can achieve their, that purpose in the confidence that Christ is working with them. Uh, Peter tells them, and he tells us, if you join Jesus, if you repent and follow him, God will send them to Christ And what that means is if they repent and follow Jesus, they will be given the Holy Spirit who will make Christ present in them and who will work out his kingdom purposes in their lives just as he has been doing in the church since Pentecost. In other words, he's saying if you follow Jesus, you will see Jesus working in you and with you. And you will see him working out the purposes of his hospitality in your lives. You will experience the refreshing, transformative work Of God. So you see, seeing this displaced man receive a place in God's kingdom and being called to join Jesus in his purpose of building his kingdom through Jesus' presence in their lives is why, at the end of chapter 4, verse 4, we're told, But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. And then from there, let me just conclude by quickly. Uh, connecting this all to the rule of life stuff that I reminded you about at the beginning. Uh, I believe that these folk followed Jesus not only because they saw that Jesus would forgive them and give them a purpose and a place. I also believe they followed Jesus because they saw how they could practically work that out in their lives within the church. Remember at the end of chapter 2, we're told that when people outside the church saw their devotion, which included worshiping together with all the people of God, praying together with all the people of God, hospitality among all the people of God, literally working out the purposes of God by giving people a place in their lives, even when it was difficult, uh, when they saw that, the Bible tells us that the people deeply respected them and held them in high regard. That life which they saw, combined with this invitation, made this mass conversion not only possible in these people's minds. There is a place for me. There is a purpose for me. There is the power of God available for me in Jesus. But it also made it desirable. I can see how it looks. I can see what it looks like to be fitted into God's people in joyful hospitality. And I want it. I know there are people there who can give it to me and lead me in this way of life. I know there are people there who will work with me when I'm difficult and will help me. The rootedness of this church's way of life made it profoundly fruitful for the kingdom. That is part of this mass conversion. And so what I'm hoping we all walk away from this morning is a faith That desires to practically and consistently devote itself to Jesus in worship, prayer, fellowship, and hospitality, and a faith that from that acts on the belief that Jesus has room for that person and that person and that person here at Grace and in the church more broadly. And I'm also hoping we can see the incredible blessings of our Lord who has given us a place and who has given us a purpose. And who has given us himself as he works out all of these blessings among us together through his spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us a place and for giving us a purpose through the person of your son. Uh, Please help us to act in the faith that the gospel really does provide a home in Jesus' church where people really do fit where you have made a place for them to fit. So as we reach out to our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, our friends, and invite them home to you in Jesus' name, uh, please bless us with the privilege of seeing them come to faith in our Savior. And please help us to live out our faith with you in such a way that as we enter into our fellowship, they would experience the welcome of Christ as we pray and worship and serve together uh, so that whether we've been here for 25 years or 25 minutes, we can be confident that we have met with our risen Savior, that he truly walks among us, that he empowers us, that he's blessing us, and is allowing us to be a blessing in and through him as people are, are fitted into their place in the kingdom. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.